Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets to Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hello, everyone. Mary-Kate Saliva with you here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us today as we've got a wonderful conversation teed up with an amazing veteran serving beyond the uniform. Stay tuned for an incredible conversation. Quick programming note before we get started. This episode, this program is in part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. And today's show in particular is in partnership with a veteran service organization near and dear to my heart, Vets to Industry. You can learn more about this powerful nonprofit and how they continue to give back to the military veteran community at vets2industry.org. And an initiative that is near and dear to my heart, the Guam Human Rights Initiative, you can find more at guamhri.org. Now, without further ado, I'm ready to introduce our guest today. He is founder and president of Lead Tactics. He's also a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. And let us welcome Jake Edwards. Hey, Jake. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Mary-Kate. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm super stoked that, uh, you know, from for our listeners today, if you tune into Paul Peng's episode, Paul actually introduced me to Jake. And Jake, I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. You know, we were just talking a little bit earlier about our time in service and getting pumped up and amped up before PT in the morning, or, you know, just on those days that were just really slogging along. So, I was wondering if you could share and pump us up this morning with some motivation. So you asked me what my favorite quote was. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or one of my yes. favorites. So, so one of my favorite quotes is it's really just basic. And to me, that's what makes sense under, under stress, what, what makes sense in a daily basis. So my favorite quote is easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. And it's by Jersey Gresnick. It was designed for he's a fitness guy but it really works for everything in life like how we how we eat how we act how we operate how we train and so it really is off about convenience and that quote covers the convenience world that we've kind of created in our society i think one of the most challenging things is is we don't want to make things easier just because you know oh it's what i want no we got to think about the damage that's going to take long term so those hard choices can make us better in the, in the long run. I really, I really love that. That's actually the first time that I've heard that one. And I know you said even the things that we eat, cause I'm thinking like that was probably, it would have been a harder choice for me to choose not to eat the ice cream that I did last night, like <laughs> after the gym. So, oh, but I mean, in all seriousness, that's, that's something that I think applies. I can think of just a dozen different ways that that applies in my life right now. Yeah. And I wanted to, yeah, definitely give our listeners, our viewers a chance to get to know you a little bit. And one of the things that I love doing on this show is 
already about where, where you came from. So I love that you gave us a little bit of glimpse, pumping us up with that motivational quote, but now we get to see a little bit more about who you are as a person today, but where you started from. So would you mind telling and sharing with us a little bit about where you grew up? Yeah, for sure. So it's a known place now because of actually a horrible incident around the world, but it's a great place where I'm from and I had a great childhood there. I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay. The home for UVA and my granddad played football there actually. And that's kind of what made my family dad's family my my dad's mom's side was there and my dad's dad came there to play football at uva and that's where i guess all the roots came from and my dad was raised and it was a great place to grow up and i actually had a really tough childhood though in that town because after the, the age of 10 so going into fifth grade i end up changing schools every year from fifth grade to 11th grade and Doing that six years in a row, it takes a young man or any young girl, whatever you are, it it takes a lot out of you because you're you have no structure. So that's where I was born and raised in the town. But family wise, I came from kind of a broken family and have I have four sisters and a brother and we all have our own challenges. But we're all resilient. And the, the word resilient for me just means you deal with your challenges and you just look for areas to be a problem solver. So my childhood prepared me for the whole life that I've got to the point now at um, almost 40 years old. And for the last 20 years, I've been in the security crisis readiness industry. And uh, it all started, I was training back then as a 10-year-old, getting ready for these moments. And I don't have a resentment to my family for where what, what happened as a child and right. what broke our family and separated us. But I respect the things that, got me where I am today. And I have no hate in my heart. Just try love. And I, yeah, I love that. Definitely focusing on, on the love. Where, where do you mentioning how many of you are? There's six, six of you total. Yeah. Three siblings. Where, where do you fall in that, in the number? I'm number four. I'm the youngest yes. boy. Number four. Number four. Number four. So I was like growing up, like, I don't know, for me, I'm thinking of like the Waltons here. I, I don't even remember how many of them there are, but <laughs> I feel like it's not as, common now to have a family maybe maybe at least where I'm at to have that many siblings how was that for you growing up I mean it was great it was great till it was great till I was 10 really because we were all together and then we after after fourth grade my parents split and then they split all us kids and and it kind of put us on a path for just survival older siblings had a more challenge than me and I kind of watched the combat slash chaos per se of my older my oldest sister was good because she was going to go off to college in a year. So she kind of mm-hmm. was separated from, but my brother and my, my older brother, my older sister, that's a year and a half older than me. They were the ones that had the, had the hardest. And I got to, they helped protect me, but I had to watch the the movie of their chaos, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and I can imagine that that would be tough being, especially like somewhere in the the middle too of that uh, and then the, again the separation that you all had you talked about like the survival piece and sort of i imagine that there's some lesson learned some anecdotes in there did you have anybody that really took you under their wing at that point to mentor you whether that was another sibling or an, an adult well i played sports and i had a, my stepdad came in my life when i was 12 and he really helped me like show me how to how to put life in action we would travel uh, he'd take me 
in the summertime, we'd go to Chicago where he grew up and we'd go to, I like, I love the Chicago Cubs because of him. Cause I'd go to baseball games all summer long right. for that month or two months that we were there in Chicago for the summer. So it really would have been my stepdad during those times for parts of the phase, but it really was, it, it was just kind of me raising myself in a way. Um, I had it, my sister who was a year and a half older than me or is a year and a half older than me. She, she always protected me. She has a, a very protective nature of herself, but she was the one going through the hardest time. She, I'll just share this because something to our uh, vulnerabilities aren't weaknesses. Right, they absolutely. are, if they are, if you let yourself feel like it's taking from you, but you have to let my challenge people is get your vulnerabilities to where it's something that it energizes you because you know, it doesn't own you anymore. It doesn't take from you. It, you, you're helping others now by sharing it. So be confident in your vulnerabilities. Uh, so anyway, with her, it was very emotional when she was 15 to 16, she was anorexic and bulimic and she's five foot eight. She's not, uh, she's, you know, strong. She was down to about 80 pounds. And that's not a lot of weight for a five foot eight person. And she was very close to death. And like I said, she was my older sister. So, and we're very close still, very similar personality. We're very tough, competitive people, great athlete she was, but she was so lost with trying to identify something that she thought she needed to be. And she had no structure, no self-worth. And she, I remember crying at her when she was at John Hopkins University Hospital and saying, I was like, I don't want you to die. And I've never shared this openly, like publicly. I don't think I have detail, but those, like, it's like, it's like combat for me, like in real combat, the 0.01% of the time in life is what we, we really store as long-term memory, right? We don't remember a whole lot, like details, specific little details, but just like the Battle of Fallujah, those three weeks I was in that heavy, heavy battle. I remember almost every friggin' moment of it. It's stored in my brain. It's just like with my sister in that conversation. There's certain things of like where there's fear of death or grave bodily harms for self or others. I remember that conversation and like I still feel the emotion of it. So she was there, but it was there, I think, as sibling love. And she wasn't strong for me until later in life when she finally found her strength because now she's one of the strongest people I know. Wow. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing that with me today. And I think that. What you just talked about and sharing the vulnerabilities, being able to, you just showed her strength too. And the fact that it was, her actions weren't just impacting her, but you and anybody else who felt close and, and perhaps probably your other siblings as well. But she was, she's someone of value, someone that you love. And to see her go through that was deeply impactful. And I, I keep going back with the, the golden nuggets that you're sharing about, about survival and the fact that your siblings and, and you went through this at such a young age. But perseverance and strength is something that I'm also hearing in what you're sharing and that you all were able to lean on each other. Because uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I end up feeling like it when I talk to others about hearing like it's just them, they feel like it's just themselves but it, it's really that that brotherhood, that sisterhood that I can hear in your voice that you had when you were younger and you had it even once you joined the, the Marine Corps as well. So I really appreciate that. And I, your stepdad, too, mm -hmm. talking about his, the strength and mentorship that he gave to you at that time. I think that we all can kind of name somebody at, at that time that really took us under their wing. And so and it doesn't always have to be somebody that's 
that's blood. And I think that that's important too, that we can see that what a strong man looks like, what a strong woman looks like and in others that not necessarily our immediate families. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I do want to talk about that time as you got older, when it came time for you to make that decision about joining the Marine Corps. And so what led you on that path? You talk about starting at 10 years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that time between 10 and that time when um, you decided to join the Marine Corps? Yeah, like I, like I mentioned, I, from 10, from fifth grade to 11th grade, I switched schools every year. Like I didn't go to the same school. I cannot at imagine. All. And um, every year in middle school, I mean, every year, it's just um, sometimes I went back to the school I was at, but I switched. I had a year break. Does that make sense? So there was no, and I had friends, you know, but it was just constant, constant movement. And at that age, that leads to having zero structure and zero self awareness like I didn't know not saying I didn't know who I am right because like you hear that that kind of buzzword a lot like know yourself what it really comes down to is just it's knowing how you're perceived how you're seen and the faster we can do that the better so it took me a long time the Marine Corps uh, getting to the Marine Corps time um, I was I had done construction work right out of high school my brother-in-law was a bricklayer and they were like some of the best in the Charlottesville area there still are like if you know the halls, they're the best bricklayers out there. Um, worked with those guys, and they wore wore me out. Um, there's, a, there's always a joke. There was a joke that uh, my brother-in-law's dad would say because we were working this job in Waynesboro, which if you know the area, it's like about a 35, 40-minute drive from Charlottesville. Yeah. And it was like freezing cold, like below freezing. We had to put antifreeze in the mortar so it didn't freeze to lay the block. And... Um, I don't remember this. I don't remember what happened, but the story is, and I'm cool with the story. They could say it. story is I called in one morning was like, I can't go to work today. The conditions are too harsh. <laughs> and, oh my gosh. Um, it's, it's, I love the story. Cause it's like, it's pre Marine Corps for me. You know, I'm a young adult now. Um, but you know, I, I, I really look at the back of that time. It's, like you asked the quote earlier for me to share, to yeah. start out. But I really, I think a better quote I could ask right now to everyone is like, what would it be in life? Like vision yourself, you're reading your book. Okay. Like third person, you're reading your book. Like, what do you want your story to say? Because we have That's, a choice. I love that. Yeah. We have a choice in our outcome and our timeline and in the path that we go on. Now, the faster we can find out how we're seen on this world and where we fit, like stoicism kind of perspective, like where we are, but we got to get, it's just, we got to get out of the street level view of our life. We got to get off the fear, the fear view, you know, the street level where, where we see all the things in person. We got to, we got to reflect and get outside of self. And once we do that, we can really create the life we want to have. Cause I'll tell you right now. If I didn't join the Marine Corps, I don't know what the heck I'd be doing right now, Mary Kate. No freaking clue. No, no clue. It the Marine Corps gave me the mm -hmm. best gift of my entire life, even though it took for me so much too, friends. But to me, I, it's we all know the mortal world we live in. I feel like you're a very intuitive person. Like it's like you're the you. I could just see like if I was on a fob with you like you're you're the one that's like making the most sense out of the 
the rest of us in the sense of you've just dropped so many golden nuggets of wisdom. It's going to be really hard for me to really just you know, show to listen. So I just really hope like our listeners are pulling in all that I'm taking in right now too, because just like I said, even from the time that you were a child and just being able to say that to your sister and, and knowing that what you did, like come in the Marine Corps, the people that you surround, even the guys from the, you laid bricks with, you're able to just like educate them look at the bigger picture. There's more to life out there. There's more than just this. There's more than the problems that adversary adversity that we're experiencing right now. And I'm only doing this plug because I literally just watched this, but like Goodwill hunting, you know, have you seen Goodwill hunting? Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a so long like, time, but yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. Like the, the film and, or Ben Affleck's telling Matt Damon, like, if he's like, if I walk up, he's like, I, I want to just go to your house one day and knock on the door and you won't be there. You know, he's like, I want you to leave, get out of this town. <laughs> like go, your, your potential is so much more than just this, than what they're seeing in front of them. And, and I won't say all the things that he said after that to him about what he'd do if he didn't leave, <laughs> but it just makes me think of, I could see you being him in that moment of just like letting your buddies know and the people that you care about know that there's more than the adversity that they're facing in that moment. And so I, I would love, I really want our, um, obviously we know you joined the U.S. Marine Corps, the great Marine Corps. And I know that I'm not supposed to say he was a Marine. There's no such thing as the was a Marine once a Marine, always a Marine. So uh, if you could talk to us about what you did in the Marine Corps and where'd you go? Yeah. So I, I was actually post 9-11 Marine. I joined after 9-11, I joined because I started realizing I had there's a bigger purpose that I could support. And, you know, the nation's calling of needing needing support. It wasn't right after 9-11. I kept doing community college and kept doing masonry work and other other little jobs. But I joined because I was just going through some challenges, had a car accident, and I was like, all right, while I still have a healthy body and still have a record that isn't going to destroy me from joining, you know, a criminal record per se, I need to get the frig out of this town. Because if you're from Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, it's a small town and you freaking know everybody. So getting out of there is tough. It's a great place to grow up, great place to live, but it's hard. It, it's like you mentioned, it, it, it holds you in like Goodwill Hunting. It, it'll keep you there because there are great things. It's beautiful. The mountains are right there. You know, it's two and a half hours from the beach, if that. So I got out of there and I joined the Marine Corps. I wanted to be a military police dog handler because I love dogs. I've been I've had mm. dogs my entire life and I can prove it because right now I have three kids, but I have four dogs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Weighing that balance there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my wife will always have more dogs than kids. OK. But um, we have three rescue dogs. One dog. My oh, wife I love has. that. She, I, I call her Dan Crenshaw because she has one eye and she's 15 years old. Poor little thing. She went through combat herself, got her eye mm-hmm. taken out in a fight with one of our other dogs. We've rehomed him since, but we have three rescue dogs. And anyway, I've always been around dogs and I wanted to be a dog handler in the Marine Corps. And when I was joining was right before I joined right before right. the Iraq war. And at that time they had no MP. So I picked, I went reserve status because in reserves, Marine Corps is, is the only way you can pick your MOS exactly. If not, you go into a field and you, they, oh, I didn't even they know that. 
Yeah. So a lot of people, just so you know, if you want to be in the Marine Corps and you want a specific job, go reserves and then go active duty because you get your exact MOS you want. So I went combat engineer 1371, which is, a, I joined a division combat engineer unit, which we, we support infantry. We do all the demolition where the, the IED sweepers, I was a, you know, rock clearance, all that stuff. So we call them, we're sappers. We go to sapper school. So I was a Marine sapper and immediately I joined and I went to my school, came back, put my active duty orders in, and we got deployed as a reserve unit immediately. Oh and goodness. I was in Iraq a year from graduating boot camp. And I was a super boot, you know, we call, we call them, you ever heard the term, you're a boot? I mean, you're young, like you're a fresh green or whatever they call you. We call it boot. Like boot is a derogatory term in the Marine Corps. So we join, we go deploy and we are tasked with the most amazing, we are attached, excuse me, to the most amazing Marine Battalion, Marine Corps, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, the Thundering 3rd out of Camp Horno, California. And I had the awesome pleasure of serving as I lived at Abu Ghraib prison with them with Lima Company 3-1, mm. right after that, we prepared and we served together in the deadliest battle in the entire post-911 war, the second battle of Fallujah. And our battalion was the main assault battalion. And we were, I was a demo guy doing a lot of explosives. And I was also a saw gunner, machine gunner. And it was, it was tough because I can share a couple of pictures with you. Maybe if you want to show it on the show to like to show at this point, maybe yeah. they can plug it in, but we stopped like liking to take pictures because every time we take pictures, we have less people because guys would get killed every day or so. Mm -hmm. We were losing guys every day. We lost, we had 400 out of just under, you know, 900 folks in our battalion around a thousand. We had 405 purple hearts and we had 33 KIA. And that led me to all the stuff I've done, all the volunteer work I've done. And that was my, I was a one pump chump. That was my only deployment. I actually, 3-1 left, and I got attached and extended with a battalion called 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And we stayed with them, and we did the first free election in Iraq and Fallujah. And it was absolutely an amazing experience that makes me appreciate our democracy and our, our freedoms that we have so much. Because yes. those people were so happy to be able to be represented as a single soul body. They, they remember, do you remember seeing the pictures, Mary Kate, of oh, the, yeah. the fingerprints of the, yes. the purple? Yes. To mark your mark your spot, mark your signature per se. I'm so I'm so proud. And at that time, give me goosebumps a, right now just hearing you talk about it. I was a punk 22 year old, not punk. I shouldn't say I was I was a Marine 22 year old. You know, typical like the Marine Corps kind of molded me to what I am. Um, never got tattoos, like I said. So I had a little bit of uh, control. <laughs> you're like was, the only one i, I know <laughs> i was drunk a few times and i was gonna get like my middle name is still well i was gonna get it tattooed still and then well in the back of my arms like the old english i was drunk in the park tattoo parlor a few times but somehow i guess i sobered up enough as i watched my buddies in there getting the ink first that ended up i was like nah I'm just, when it came my time i was like nah i'm good <laughs> um, so oh my goodness but, but back to uh back to combat it's Combat is, is, is a gift for a warrior. It's a gift. And what I mean by that is it's a gift to, there's nothing, I thought it used to be cool that I went through combat. 
and now as a defensive tactics trainer and a combat skills trainer and a crisis trainer for I work with kids a lot, mostly with kids. I tell people now, look, I don't want you to ever have to be in an active violence situation. I actually want, if you can get away from it, create space, right? Get away. But the best gift about being in combat is the ones that did not make it home. It's now our job and it's our servant heart duty to be super fidelis, to always be faithful and share their story because they only live through us if we share yes. their name because we're the last ones to solve them. Yes. And you're keeping their, you're keeping their legacy alive. I mean, I was just getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about that. And I think that with Hollywood and, and things in the media, we glorify combat in different ways and, and sort of, especially when we're young and we, we want a taste of that. And some of you talk to young soldiers, Marines, just different branches that just want a piece of that. But then to, to look at it, look back, think like we need to keep these stories alive of those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. So I know you said it was the one deployment, but I mean, you, what you faced and what you experienced on that one deployment is uh, you lived 10,000 years more than others. You lived more in that, that one deployment than many people will experience in a lifetime. So I, I thank you for sharing that and keeping their legacy alive. And, and, um, you know, sharing sharing their legacy here on Veteran Voices. I wanted to to ask you if, if this is something that in keeping their legacy alive, do you do you promote a lot about about service? Like, is this something that was hard? Like coming coming back home was there a point where you're like still promoting you should join the Marines or like even for your own kids and your immediate family? Any talk conversations there about joining? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I came back home from that deployment and I still try to go active duty. I went, I went, I did recruiter's assistance for almost a year as I was waiting to lap move into human intelligence. I was trying to go right. O2 field and that didn't work out. So I almost went career recruiter from there because I was really doing a good job. Recruiter's assistance, I got put in for a NAM because I was doing so well and I was promoting people like crazy. I mean, I, I, I have a business degree, you know, I got it later, but I'm a natural salesman of like I, I love, I love people and I love communicating. And I love, I love helping people find the thing that makes them feel passion. Yes. Um, and that's Absolutely. because you can, you can, you can't teach passion, but you can find purpose. So I tell people, look, I can't teach you how to find passion, but I can help you explore on things that might, might be, you might be passionate about. And maybe you can find purpose from that. And then that's what just keeps your energy just flowing and you just keep moving. And so I've always supported, I've helped a lot of people join different services. And I'll give you one example. I'll tell, this is what I tell people, look, if you want to be a Marine, be a Marine. If you don't want to be a Marine, don't be a Marine. You either know you want to do it or not. Okay. That's, that's, that's where you meet people like that's, that's a Marine right there. They know they want to be a Marine. My nephew, I was trying to push him to go into the, uh, the Air Force actually, because I worked six years. I got the Marine Corps as a sergeant. 2009 did all that and then i was helping train guys within our unit to go deploy because we'd always have a platoon at a time deploying so i became like one of the trainers for the counter id stuff because we were some of the first missions that really were finding these massive ieds remember the first one i found was like three one five five and they're like 98 pounds each and the kill radius for one of those is like 50 meters but i found we found one our first id and literally like they weren't finding them like that 
or an 04 like that in Iraq yet. It was early. And then we found the largest ID at the time. It was 21 105s and 120s daily chain together to take out a whole entire platoon at an LPOP. So I got I got involved because I was a breacher, counter ID. And I was helping train some of our guys to deploy. And it kind of got me where I am today. I got in the Marine Corps as a sergeant and I started training combat skills for the government and uh, worked for the Air Force. And very quickly, they created a new position and I became our lead, our, our, became the, the assistant lead instructor. And then, I don't know if you remember this term, Mary Kate, remember the green on blue issues we had? Yes. Yeah. And sometimes they would make them go um, back through basic again, right? Well, green on um, blue was the, 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 the active the green shooting threat. The, oh, okay. The, from the that standpoint, okay. Attack, I was thinking. I was thinking from like green, Polish. going green to blue, like going from Army Marine Corps to Air Force or Navy, oh, and they yeah. were like cycling yeah, them through to go back term. through training again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, but this one is term. talking about like insider insider threat. Yeah. So remember, we had a lot in 2012. You were still in, right? You were in then, right? Mm-hmm. You were so young, I, I think. In too young. <laughs> yeah, still young. <laughs> I was still young, but yeah, that's, I hadn't heard, um, but yeah, it, it definitely looks different. I definitely want you to, to share with our, our listeners about how different it is from that time, even just in a decade. Yeah. So, you, so in 2012, Afghanistan, Afghanistan was really, was really heavy. Iraq had died down and we kind of pulled out. So I was mm-hmm. a combat skills instructor and we would teach students going to 140 different countries. And most of them were still hostile environment students going to Afghanistan. And so we had a lot. That's when we, in 2012, we had 62 NATO fatalities from, they called it insider threats, and we called it green on blue attacks. So Mm. host nation, Afghan army, most of them, or police, that would shoot and attack coalition forces, NATO. And the schoolhouse that I went to right before I got there had lost nine advisors to one insider attack in Afghanistan from one army Colonel in Afghanistan killed nine of our students and he caught them off guard. They were all armed and it was so, gunfights are so fast. Chaos happens so fast. Everyone thinks, and this is what I challenge with society. And, and by the way, I'll go over the place because I'm just passionate like this. If you have a gun, that's great. That doesn't mean that you're going to be ready for any gunfight you might be in or any situation you might put you in. Training is an investment and we cannot think we ever are an expert. You can only qualified to be an expert in a moment, but you can't live to be an expert. You can live to be a professional. So remember that you're not a SME, you're an SMP, subject matter professional. So Mm. continue to develop and grow. If you have a gun, if you think you're in combat skills, whatever, that's awesome. But I challenge you to never stop being a student. You're never gonna be an expert. but I say that because uh, in the active shooter and our threat programs weren't, weren't happening. And now in our own country, the term run, hide, fight, which was just something DHS did to come out with in 2013, such a big deal. And now I'm at a state conference right now as we record this. Um, had a great day of training. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm at the state conference for a couple more days. And today I was in our active, active assault, um, active attack class. And the whole vision now is like what I get to do now teaching civilians, taking our military experience and coming back home and saying combat is not cool, right? Yeah, gunfights are amazing adrenaline, but so are motorcycles. I used to ride motorcycles a lot before I had kids, okay? If you want to get in a gunfight, 
Okay. Please don't do it here. Go ride a motorcycle. Okay. Go freak yourself out a little bit on the mountains. But I'm telling you right now, we have to start tying in our communities and our and our civilians better for the violence here in our own country. So the I don't want to go over the I, I feel like I'm all over the place a little bit with what I'm talking about with what I used to do. But I did all that work in the Air Force. I helped a lot of folks uh, join the Air Force, the Army. My nephew, he I wanted him to go in the Air Force because I worked for them. And they really take care of their people, really take care of their people. And they want retention. And he ended up going to the Army as a 13 Fox artillery. Uh, he used to call in airstrikes. But he's out now. He's back home. And, you know, we have to remember big picture, like when we come back home, we have to remember the community and have to accept our past. Right? We don't have to, but I challenge you to. Because once you can accept it and once you can acknowledge that we aren't perfect, we don't need to look like a cool influencer on any social media channel. Because I guarantee right now, they, they might seem like they're cool in that little, little reel that you watch. Um, but they put about half day work in for probably a one one reel, and overall, there's, that's probably very depressing for them. <laughs> all the work they're putting in. Go out in your community, and I heard a stat today that the average American doesn't know half their neighbors in their community. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point. And you know, when you when you were just talking there, I was just thinking about how I was I was going through training with the army at the time when American sniper hit the movie theaters. And there were, there was a group of us that decided that on our free time from the course, we went to the movies and we all sat there. And there were a couple of the guys in my team that had purple heart, they're purple heart recipients. And they got up in the middle of the movie and, and walked out. And, and one of them, you know, he, he was, he broke down and was crying, you know, after we left and, and we had asked them, you know, of course, if, if they were okay, first of all, but it wasn't what we come to find out was it wasn't actually any part of the shooting or the time downrange or any of that action. It was actually the the family. It was the piece about the family and leaving the family and then trying to integrate back into home life on the return side when coming home that, you know, even though there's still war going on inside of you, you know, just like that the family and integrating back in the community that you're in and getting, you know, and, and that was what they said was what got them was the family piece. And, and I think, you know, like you said, from the outside perspective, we do want to be that cool guy. We do want to have the cool sun guy sunglasses and the tactical vests and hold a gun, but it's like those, it's the, what's the, what matters are those relationships that we have with our loved ones, the community and your point about the neighbors. I don't doubt that for a second. Yeah, actually I heard that from our new, Attorney General for Virginia, he, he opened a ceremony this morning with our the new Public Safety Secretary Bob Mozier, and the new Attorney General mentioned that statistic. I mean, it was just like I believe it. And luckily for my community, where I get to live in my small town, I live in still, I'm still I'm in Virginia now, moved back close to Charlottesville, but not in Charlottesville. Yeah, we know everybody, and to me, like we feel so much worth when we go outside the spaces that we physically operate and live in. And we know people. Now, not everybody has those kind of jobs, right? If I went counter intel, I probably wouldn't be able to be the open person I am. I probably wouldn't be a good counter intel person because I'm very open. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad things worked out. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad things worked out the way they did. And and I, I think along those lines, Mary Kate, another good thing to push out just as a message is that I've learned is and love and fall love 
the process. Fall in love with the process of life. Don't see a place where you want to be. Like maybe have a goal to get here, but be in love with the with the drive to get there. You know, like I'm going to drive out west, right? Oh, I can't wait to get there. Why don't we just kind of sit back, reflect, do some triangle breathing or some box breathing, you know, wake up a little bit and enjoy the present moment right now. It's easy for me to say that. It's very hard to live it. And I know I'm my own advocate. I need to work on that myself. You know, I'm trying to, I work for a government organization, one of the largest school districts in the country. I got three kids. I got my youngest is one. I told you about those dogs. I'm my beautiful wife. And I'll start my business that I'm trying to grow and develop the brand. Because like I said, what do you want your story to be when you're gone? And I have to ask you just because, you know, I've talked to numerous veterans uh, in our, in the community that are serving beyond the uniform, but not all of them have a, an immediate family. You know, some of them, some of them are not married or maybe they're single parents or whatnot, but when you got to the point where you discovered your why, this was something that had a greater purpose for you, that you wanted to do this. Uh, what was that like of getting your family support? Because this isn't what you're doing is not something that every spouse may be supportive of or that every family would do is and, and having that backing, I can tell is like really important to you that, you know, you're doing this not just for yourself and the community, but your family as well. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I feel it's a very interesting question you asked there where sometimes the, the depth of it for me, Mary-Kate, is like I'm a trainer. Like I train people, do stuff, but it's all came from my combat experience, mm. you know? I mean, because in the big thing now, we, this would get, get us right into the nonprofit stuff that I've done. So we lost almost 100 troops during the Battle of Fallujah, like KIA for all the battalions together. It's in the battle itself. It was the deadliest month of the entire Iraq war. 141 service members killed. 100 of those were killed in the city of Fallujah. Right about, right about 100, just 100. But we've now lost more to suicide from our Marine units and that Army unit that was there from the battle than we lost in the battle. We lost more to suicide now from those units. And I, I read the numbers the other day, 30,000, 30,000 post Taliban troops have taken their life back home. I don't know if that number is true, but I, I saw that number somewhere. Mm -hmm. And put that in perspective, that's 20,000 less than how many died in Vietnam, which was just horrific. So the servant heart is absolutely alive and well in myself and so many people that, I, that I'm around. And I think it really just came down to my, to my why it all started for me being able to believe in I create the narrative of my own life. No one else is going to get me there. People will help you, but no one's going to get you there. And so I've always been the kind of person where I, I want to build a strong foundation. Why? And one, if it's got to be one block at a time, one day at a time, that's fine. But I've never been a sprinter when it comes to achievements. And I think what we should try to do for ourselves is ask ourselves, be realistic about this, what does anybody out there in this world owe us? What does anyone else owe us? I'm gonna tell you, they don't owe you a single thing. Mm -mm. I have zero, have zero expectations from any other person. So to answer your question about others that don't have the family, don't have this, have zero expectations from anybody else, but live that servant heart where you are literally watering plants 
that you will never see grow. You know, like mm-hmm. those quotes about the trees and shade, water plants that, that you'll never see grow. Because I'll tell you right now, the evil in this world exists. The evil in this world will always have a say. But if you want to bring strength and courage to this world, a lot of stuff that our service preaches for us, if you raise your hand for the unknown, that I call that one that one way lotto ticket for the unknown. Yeah. If you did that, remember, nobody picked the path that you were going to take you on. You just you offered your life, raised your hand, and said, "Take me where you need me. I'll buy a lotto ticket to be on this team." That's just love the country, love the country yes. that that we wore that we wore, and we represented. We wore the cloth of our nation, right? Army wears on your sleeve. Marines, they used to call it slick, slick sleeves. We don't wear flags. Yeah. But, but we wear the cloth of our nation. And it's a friggin' honor to wear that. So many, like right now, our military is having such a struggle to find service members. But guess what? If I can't go back and fight, I, why can't I help support and create the next generation to be the better warriors? And I'm telling you right now, I'm making amazing warriors and our little ninjas now. These kids that get to train, I'll share some pictures with you. These, these kids, why would a kid in the middle school, I, I trained 1,200 kids in one day a few months back. Why would a kid ask a bald-bearded old guy for his autograph? Because I told, I told all these kids in the three hours I was there, I rotated six different lunches and talked to 1,200 kids. I told them, I'm not here to be your teacher. I'm not here to teach you English, Spanish, math, whatever. I'm here to help train you skills that if you need to survive one day, they're going to support that. And they friggin' loved it. I teach them the difference between why would we sit like any teacher out there, anybody that works in a school, whoever has or community center that has kids around. Don't ever train your kids to hide in front of the door or where the door will be exposed. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's say the door is open. And you can spray water in there without having to come in. Imagine that being bullets instead. Where would that water go? That's where bullets would go. So stay away from the, we call it the fatal funnel. Don't, let them sit down away from the fatal funnel, have them kneel. So I teach the kids to kneel because now they can jump up and move fast if gunfire starts coming through that door if they had to move, right? So a lot of schools still still teach kids to sit down in the corner and wait and wait for another predator. That's that tactic. Yeah, I, I have to say that. And actually thinking back on it, there wasn't, I, I went from, um, I went to a lower funded school, I say a public public school, not a lot of kids. I remember even in my elementary class, I think there was less than a dozen of us. Uh, so it wasn't that many, but I can't even recall going through that training. The only thing I remember is actually going through fire drills. But like you talked about before about like the where you, you get desensitized to it. Whenever the fire alarm would go off, we just like get up and like, oh, here we go again. Like we, we don't know if there's really a fire or not. But I have I wanted to ask because now you, you really piqued my curiosity with kids. Uh, do you find that it's easier because I don't I haven't read studies on this. I, I really don't know. can't speak from expertise by any means. But as far as kids, imagine that kids we learn fear. I feel it like over time, like it, it's something that we, we get more fearful and afraid, but with kids, like you mentioned little ninjas, I'm thinking like they're a little bit, they're still at the point where they're just fearless and they're, they're karate chop somebody. But do you find that, that they are fearless and perhaps easier to train than your adult students? It's a great question. And they absolutely are. And the reason why is because 
it's like like adult like I actually came from the adult learning side. Adult learners, right? Whole different game, whole different ball game. Adult learners have a resume. They have time on the saddle. They have a perspective. Kids, it's a fresh, clean slate. So they're not, you don't have to unlearn to then relearn, mm. if that makes sense. Yes. So with kids, it's a great question. I love how you asked that. You really made me kind of see it in a different way. And I got it. Now I'm going to use that to help challenge the teachers where are you actually hindering your kids? From their so, own fears. Yes. yes. Correct. So here's the thing with fear. Fear has kept humans alive. Mammals, right? Fear has kept humans slash mammals alive for a long time. Fear is a natural thing. There are things I naturally fear. I hate snakes. Absolutely hate them. I grew up in a place where they're all over the place. And I lived on a farm for a little while. And we had a few acres when I was a kid. So there'd be snakes. Always hated snakes. And then as I got older, like I went through combat and all this. I still didn't like snakes. And I started realizing Okay, all right. How can I remove the emotion? Right, that's the big thing I talked about. Street level, street level yes. is the emotional world we live in. It's the physical. It's like a video game. It's like it's like you on the ground right, moving. But third, third player view, or whatever they call it, third person perspective. That's where you can take away the emotions and you can see yourself and watch your movie from ahead. So with snakes, I had to start literally. I see a snake, and I remember. A perfect example, I was running trails close to my work. I was working night school security to make extra money while my wife was finishing her OT degree. I'd work my, my full job and then I'd have an hour break and I'd actually PT on the trail and then go, mm-hmm. go to the school and work night school security for four hours. And this one day, I literally was running the trail and I almost stepped on a copperhead. <laughs> and it was straight. Copperheads, I started studying them because of this. And I use them now for training with kids. When they're, when they're in the open, They'll go straight like a stick if they don't have concealment to hide in. And I literally almost stepped on his head. I was literally like not even an inch from his head. And I didn't know until I looked down because there's sticks all over this trail. It's out in the it's out in the woods. And I looked down and I see this straight thing and I see his head as my foot is going down. I'm like, oh my, like, oh my gosh, you know. And I like I high stepped for a second and then I, I I stopped and I was like, dude, dude, hold on. I was like, Go back and just kind of look at it. Don't let it own you right now. So I learned how to, in that moment of emotion, Mary-Kate, and this is my challenge for people, respect your fears in life. Mm-hmm. I went back and I stood by that copperhead. I grabbed the log to make sure he would get off the trail. because I didn't want anybody else behind me, you know, stepping on that little IED. And um, I learned, I took the emotion. I, I was like, dude, hold on. So, right, triangle breathing. Yes. In for four in the nose, hold for four, out for four, like combat breathing, same similar to combat breathing. And I literally just I removed the emotion and I was like, I don't, I'm not fearful of this thing. I respect this thing's capability. So to me, like that's that's all it is. Your fear is you respect something's capability and what it can do and the power of it. And so I've learned to use that and I use that for training for kids. And I've learned how to talk to staff members, teachers. And I help them learn to unlearn the fear of this thing that you don't control. And let's, let's talk about what do I control in this moment and what don't I control? And I'll go through these things and I'll say, look, the controllable items are what we can focus on. The, right. the don't control, uncontrollables are the things we need to accept and learn how to respect the capability of why we, why we can't control it and why it might fear us. And it's, it's tough because I came in this district, they weren't teaching defend options, run, hide, fight, you know, avoid, deny, defend tactics. 
I came in and brought my military skills from the combat skills training I was doing for the Air Force and the DOD civilians. And I, I built this national program for our school district. And it's it's amazing. And we're, we're the top 30 school district in the country in size. And I'm getting a lot of recognition, not just there, but also do a lot of stuff on the outside. I had a defensive pack. What made you want month. to give back? What made what made you want to to do this? To, I mean, to give back, especially for for kids, like all oh, the, the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Part of it was when I was an active shooter inside a threat instructor, I would have to write incident reports on things that happened for our students to like relevant, you know, current events. And I remember Sandy Hook when I wrote that report, yes. I was like, just like I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just that one. So many others I can name. Mm-hmm. You know, Fort Hood had two incidents. You know, and my mom's a retired kindergarten teacher back in oh. Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And I remember when these when these drills, you mentioned fire drills, when the when the other drills nationally in around 2004, the active threat or intruder drill started coming out and they started using the term lockdown, which I mentioned earlier. It's it's a it's a term that doesn't work for a violence situation when it's in your space. It works if it's outside your space. Right. If it's not right. in your environment, you can lock, you know, secure the base, right? To me, that's what yes. lockdown means, secure the base, right? So a lot of districts use the term secure the building. If it's an outside threat, not in the vicinity of the school, secure the building, don't let anyone out and outside activities in, but you control that building now. If it's violence on your site, that's where you can go into an active violence response, but it shouldn't be locked down because imagine being in a gunfight in the cafeteria when we were at the chow hall, right, deployed. Would locking down even make sense, Mary Kate? No, um, the fight's there. There's no. No, and I like that you mentioned earlier about like the the entry too. Like you try to you never just run into. And I'll, I'll give like an example. Literally, just a few weeks ago, I was at the gym, and all of a sudden, some of the the trainers were blocking the door, and they wouldn't let anybody leave. Like I saw this little white woman trying to leave the gym, and they wouldn't let her leave because it turned out that there was an active shooter next door at the mall and they were trying to funnel everybody they had turned half the lights off in the gym and they were trying to funnel people into the locker rooms there was only one way in the locker room and one way out and the lights were completely off and I looked and I said I am not going in that locker room I mean literally the other side of the gym that back gym had had a, a couple exits that way and there was a way to go around back to where people's car vehicles were at but I, I couldn't believe like even in that situation, like it didn't at that point, it's like it didn't matter how big like these were like big bodybuilder dudes that were like blocking the door. And and just so what you were talking about earlier with the training about that one access point just makes me think like I, I, I wouldn't want to be there. And um, people get desensitized and we think we sort of just like stop and freeze and wait for somebody else to tell us what to do <laughs> and just. Right blindly follow where everybody the herd's going you know instead of trying to think like you're, you're trying to get folks to think yeah well I, it's funny it's today in the conference i told you i'm this conference i wrote in my notes after one of the instructors was talking and i wrote in there just for notes for me to help you know add to my lesson plans i wrote evil picks the time and place right we can't always prevent evil picks the time and place what we can do is pick how we prepare to respond hmm. Just like in combat, that's why I was like, I'm so passionate about combat veterans coming home and saying the problems we have right now, we are the problem solvers for this. We, what we saw over there, okay? 
And it was a place we weren't, they weren't evil over there. We were trying to help those people, those Iraqis that voted, that marked their finger. Those are the people that we, that I remember our, uh, at the reunion, at the 15 year battle Fallujah reunion that I planned, coordinated and fundraised for. And mm. I, I did it all myself, had some help along the way, but it was all my vision. And I'm not taking all the credit for that. I'll give credit to my buddy, MC, Mike Detmer, the Allens who helped out volunteer in my golf tournament, Leslie, some other folks. But I was the only one, my buddy JP, my wife, and my uncle, rest in peace, who's no longer with us. They helped me while I was going through the planning part when no one else believed that I could do it. Literally, people told me, dude, you can't do this. I was like, what? Are you, you don't freaking tell me that. Because that so, makes no, me I'm have more energy now. Exactly. Like now. I'm going to grab you and drag you as I do it with me. So I literally, in less than three months, I don't even, it might have been in less than two, I, I planned fundraise a golf tournament with, with a charity. And the cool thing was I got connected with General Coleman, Marine three-star general, retired general. We were on the same board together for this nonprofit called Azalea mm-hmm. Charities, which they've actually closed their doors. I think COVID wore them out. There were a lot of older folks in that charity. And yeah. doing Zoom for them, what they were like, this is terrible. So they ended up closing the charity down. And great charity, though. Loved the mission. Supported them as much as I could. But I met Jerome Coleman at a golf tournament in 2018. And we talked about the Battle of Fallujah. They have it called, there's a memorial that they're building at the Marine Corps Museum called Rendering Fallujah Rendering, too. And it's actually got my battalion commander, Colonel Willie Buell, his quote on the wall where it says, the most, the most deadly that I've ever seen. Like, uh, just a, a basic quote. And um, we were talking about exhibit opening up. It's the last exhibit to open at the Marine Corps Museum. They've been working on it for a long time. And he was like, yeah, it won't be ready. It might be ready here. So I told him when I was trying to plan this, this reunion. And this is going to be the next year, 2019, which is our 15 year. And so I started planning it. And finally, two months out from, our, from uh, the golf, well, I, excuse me, to go back, summer 2019, I told the guy at the charity, hey, I want to do this golf tournament to raise money for the 15-year battle of Fallujah on November 8th at the mm-hmm. National Marine Corps Museum. So I had two months to do the golf tournament. I got sponsors, went to Cabela's, got gear. I mean, I, it was all crazy. Got raised $30,000 that, and then got $30,000 more from Simplify Fund, Simplify America's Fund, for all the food at the reunion. So the golf tournament was to raise money for the event in November. And it was incredible. And it, it showed me that you never know when you go to the store next time and that person that's, let's say, an Instacart or whatever, or that person bring your food out, you got store pickup. I literally, I try to be so kind to every person on this earth. And, and if it's, I don't want to get too detailed in conversation with them, but I'd say, hey, man, I hope you're having a great day. Like, that's all you can say to somebody. Why not? Why not say it? You never know how that person might be supporting you and helping you a week, two weeks, a month down the road. That's true. But what it does, you might have been that one moment for that person's day where they didn't lose their own, you know what? Yeah. Or they they had some faith in humanity. Like, you know what? That dude was pretty cool. Like, like he didn't need to do that. You know, or like someone in the service industry. I always ask if places have military discount, food places. And if they do. I take the discount because it's from the owner, the you know, the corporate, and I give it back in a tip to the people who serve me and, and more with more. And I say, hey, your bosses just gave you more tip. 
Uh, I love, Uh, and again, I I mean, I said it earlier on in in the episode, but just about how intuitive you are and almost say, I was like, I I don't want to say like quite an empath, but like you really do, you are able to see, like acknowledge and recognize that there is evil in this world, but just be, to be able to recognize that there's still a chance for, for everybody. And you, you start yeah. to you try to identify that good, even in the darkest of places. And you have been in the darkest of places and you still see a light there and see a, a possible way to grow that light, to grow that, that plant, as you were mentioning before, and to plant those seeds. And you're doing that as an instructor, like that may not have been like your official title in the Marine Corps, but you innately just do that as, as part of who you are. And I'm so grateful that you're using your gift to share with others and not only just on like the what you do in the everyday but even the parts that you do to give back and one of the things that for I found in during my transition from the military was that I'm a connector that wasn't even a word that I really knew what that was but I took that Gallup strengths test and that was like my number one was your connector and when I realized when I read what that was I was like that's there doesn't seem as to be as many of us but I mean I think of it like with you too about you bringing in you identify the talent and the people that you need to be able to make something happen and to connect the dots, knowing that, you know, you're the one that recognizes that you're sort of seeing with 2010 vision when everybody else is seeing with 2070 and you're just being that guiding force for them to, to direct them on that path. And so I, I really wanted to, I was like, I feel like I could talk to you all day for sure, but I know that the, they're going <laughs> to tell know. me that I'm, you know, I'm going on beyond my hour, but I do want to take this opportunity to, you've given so many words of wisdom today, but is there sort of um, advice that you would give to those in transition? If you were talking to a room, those transitioning now who are sort of lost, trying to find their next mission, maybe struggling with thoughts, you know, with dark thoughts about what, what their purpose in life is. And, and what would you say to those folks? Yeah, I, I tell folks that that's that's part of your path. You're going to find dark times where the lights are out. You're going to find yourself with no electricity, you know, perspective, per se. And when that happens, you got you to remember, tell your story in reverse in your life. Mm. You know, that you there's more you want to do. And if you can't find purpose in yourself, if you love animals, maybe foster a dog. Maybe if you can't, if you don't have the ability to do that, you don't have the, the location or the house or the approval, maybe go volunteer at your local shelter uh, where you can go walk dogs, be a volunteer. You know, it's, it's funny where I work, our building is right by our, our county, our county animal shelter and they walk the dogs. I don't know if it's because there's a thousand plus people that work in my building and they're trying to market them on the street. I think it's because it's just part of the path to walk them. They walk them through our parking lot, through the woods and you see all these dogs and it's, it's like just seeing a dog for me, like my personality, some yeah. people, maybe it's a cat. It's like, it just cheers me up. Like, Oh, something that can't talk to me with actual English or words, but it can tell it can talk to me so much with just its energy and its mm-hmm. body language. So maybe think about if animals are a way out. Okay. And if you don't like animals, you're allergic. All right, Roger that. Let's find something else. So yes. find something though, that gives you energy thinking about good energy, thinking about being part of it. That's a way to find your passion in life. Something that gives you more energy and that doesn't drain and take from you. Because right now we live in such a competitive world of technology and the human behavior has been mastered 
by IT gurus, yes. our algorithms, digital, the digital, like we're using digital to connect. This is a good way to connect. I'm not going to get off here and be all over social media. I'm going to get off here and go connect and eat some chow tonight with my buddies that I'm here at the conference with. And, you know, we're going to hang out and, and enjoy this little break I get to have away from home. You know, my wife's putting a lot of work right now. It's a burden for her for me to be here, but I'm not going to waste the time. I'm going to develop and connect with other people. But find something that gives you energy by just thinking about it or meditation and or, excuse me, and or just get outside. Yes, that's a good one. If it's raining, get outside, put a rain jacket on, get an umbrella. But sometimes just being outside and moving, like Teresa Larson, Dr. Teresa Larson, she'd be great to have on here too for you. But like Movement RX, that's her whole business is all about movement. Like our bodies are meant to move. Right. And if you have challenges with your body with physical ailments, okay, her job is to literally find you options. She's a PT. She's like, I'm yeah, gonna help great. you figure out how you need to move. And uh it's funny, my wife's an OT and I've actually had them on the phone one time, but like just it's just it's just so interesting to there's so many layers of what we can do out there for that question. But I want to follow with one last story, Mary Kate, about mm-hmm. about the reunion that I planned because that's the that's the oh, I've done five big events, three of them were nonprofits in the last three years, but it's all about composure, holding frame, and making the movement for relation or working on a relationship. So I promoted, I looked at the website for the National Marine Corps Museum. They said they were going to have the museum ready by November mm-hmm. two thousand eighteen. So I'm I'm promoting an event. I was like, cool, Roger that. They're, I'm not going to check. I'm not going to challenge their their information. I'm going to say, Roger that. It's going to be ready. So I was promoting my event. Hey, we're going to have our National Marine Corps Museum at the with the new exhibit and they did i showed you that marine corps times article came out the military times article came out a local community article came out prince william times and um and the marine corps museum saw the article someone had sent it to them at the foundation staff and they reached out to me and said whoa 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 time out what are you saying what are you telling people this exhibit is not even close to being ready and i was like what look at y'all's website it's it's marketing that it's going to be ready and they're like Oh, that's a mistake. So we had to unlearn. Like- we had to we had to remove what we had put out. And they were like, you, you can't tell people this. You got to fix this. So actually what happened was they said, why don't you come down here and meet with our, our ops chief, basically. And their ops chief is a retired Marine. I feel bad. I can't remember his name. But we didn't have a great conversation at first. When I first mm-hmm. met him, he had this like almost like a – Ops chief type gunny, look what have you know, gunny in the Marine Corps. Yeah, I know. That yeah. Looking at me like, who the frick are you? And what the heck are you putting out? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I held frame in that live moment when I first met him, but he wanted to basically tell me, hey, this is what the status of the exhibit is. This isn't possible. Your, your reunion is not going to work. But he wasn't very, he was a little abrasive and it might be his personality, but I just, I, I learned from my experience in life to like, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to be reactive. I'm going to be proactive, which is a huge part of how I live by. So I just, I accepted, I tried to hold frame and I respected him. I respected his position and his way of communicating, even though it wasn't like, I didn't enjoy having to take this kind of conversation from him. It wasn't very good, but I went through it 
he took me on a tour of where the exhibit's going to be. And all I got to see all the artifacts and all this stuff is so cool. And um, I think he did that for me because I was just calm and I didn't react. And after that tour, he took me off for like over an hour. I got to see where everything's going to be in this new exhibit. It's just not ready yet. He said, look, General Natonsky is on the board for this, this exhibit in the museum. And I was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. I was like, well, he was our division commander for the Battle of Fallujah. He planned the entire battle, basically. He's like, well, I'm going to connect you, give you his number and connect you with him. And so General Natonsky and I got lunch locally. He lives really close to where I work. Great guy. Had an awesome conversation. He found out what I was doing. He said, here's what I'm going to do. He's like, look, Jake, we, we, our veterans need this. He's like, you're right. The suicide's off, off the charts right now. He's like, you know, honestly, I, five, 10 year, you know, that's the big numbers for reunions and stuff. He's like, it's 15 year reunion. He's like, we haven't, haven't even thought about it really, you know? And so he connected me with Sergeant Major Kent, who was the 16th Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. And then I also got connected with Colonel Shupp, who is the, was the regimental commander for us in Fallujah. His nickname was basically, he was the mayor of Fallujah. He like, he was doing everything operational. So the Marine Corps Museum and the foundation staff found out that article came out and they asked me to have a meeting with them about where, how the reunion is going to look. Because what I did was I planned a, re- a whole entire battle reunion, not just my unit 3-1, but for 3 3-1, 3-5, 1-8, 1-3, and Army 2-2. All the main battalions that were part of the battle for the invasion. Of that of that battle and we literally had over 360 people there showed up and for some of the people mary kate i paid for their entire travel because they couldn't afford it to be there and i got them a hotel room staying for that money i raised wow that's incredible and let me back up real quick for that one uh, it was it was amazing and i'm so glad i was able to do it i had to go to my last meeting for the foundation staff before the event to check on status because they they heard that there was going to be up to 500 people there. And they were like, you can't handle those numbers. The, the auditorium where we we're going to have our presentation part of the reunion right. can only, can only hold 360 people. So they were like, we need to meet about this. How are you going to control people coming in? So I was like, look, I have an event break registration. If they're not on here, they ain't coming in. And so I go to this meeting and I asked Colonel Shup to help me out. And he shows up with him and he's on my left. And Sergeant Major Carlton Kent, 60 Sergeant Major Marine Corps, is on my right. And we're sitting at a meeting together. The last time I saw those guys was in Fallujah. The last time I saw, the only time I ever saw Sergeant Major Kent in person was my first meal, leaving the second battle of Fallujah to go pick up our reinforcements and go shower for the first time in, in like over a month. He was, we stopped at the Camp Fallujah MEF headquarters. He served our child with General Natonsky that night and General Sattler. That's the last and, uh, time you saw him. Wow. Yeah, and then to be sitting, sitting right next right. to him. Goodness. And he, and, he, and he literally took over. If you ever heard him talk, that guy owns the room. He took over and said, yes. look, he said, foundation staff, I want you all to understand. This Marine right here, this, he's doing this out of his servant heart. Yes. He's not trying to cause any trouble here. He's trying to make these warriors come together. And they literally shut up. And it was just complete silence. And it was, okay, let's just figure out the last few things. This is going to work. And my whole challenge of that to anybody is there's nothing cool about that. That's just an amazing opportunity I got to have in life and a, and a cool little story to tell. 
but it all came from something very basic. I tried to control my emotions. I held frame. I guess I did, did a good job of controlling my emotions. And someone gave me more than they needed to. But I still, like I said earlier, I still had zero expectations for anything. So if we can do that, if we can master ourselves, right? Control our emotions, have zero expectations, but live with a servant heart, it is unstoppable of what passion and purpose you can find in life. Gosh, I love that. And especially that last part about living with a servant heart. But you brought up such a great point about controlling the emotions, because I think that's one thing that we could do a better job on that we don't do. It's not like it's mandated training on how to control our emotions, whether that's anger, sadness. It's like we we come from all walks of life, all different types of upbringings from across the country. Some grew up in the city, some in the country. And they come and join the military, serving side by side. But we're not taught necessarily like how to to really cope with that stress. Like we know we're going to Charlie Mike. We know we're going to continue on and get the get the mission done. But as far as like even you mentioned earlier about like coming home and still having that war raging on inside of you, being able to be like you brought everybody back together and be able to to have that camaraderie, reconnect with people that they hadn't seen in years. But you all had that same that common bond of having served in the same place, having walked in darkness in the same place, the same time, and being able to share that moving forward and continuing on the legacy, like you said, of those who paid the ultimate sacrifice. So I really love that to continue serving with a, with a servant heart and others recognize that in you. And um, gosh, I, I really want, I, I have no doubt that there's many people that want to get a hold of you after this episode. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us about how our listeners could get a hold of you. What's the best platform, best way to reach you? Sure. Well, I love, I hate social media, but I, I really love and enjoy LinkedIn because I feel mm-hmm. like you can be yourself as a deep person and not like a attention getter. Right. Even though it, it all social media is that in general, but it's a way to communicate to professionals. Um, so LinkedIn is my favorite. You just reach me at Jake Edwards, or you can find Lee Tactics, my company. And um, I'll have Instagram as well, Lee Tactics. And I have Facebook, Lee Tactics. But, um, but LinkedIn is my favorite account, social media-wise. I have a YouTube channel called Lee Tactics. I put all our podcasts I record on there with Paul. And I used to have one called The Weekly Pill. During COVID, I started that because I lost my uncle to suicide. Mm-hmm during COVID and he was a Green Beret combat vet and he just, his body was shutting down. And I was trying to figure out like, what can I do while I'm stuck at home working, mm-hmm. you know, to, to stay like to, to get out of this funk. So I started a podcast called the weekly pill and pill stand for purpose, impact, leadership, legacy. And you've been talking about that this whole time too, about, about that legacy piece and what sort of story do we want to leave behind in this world so I really, I really appreciate your time, Jake. Thank you so much for, for being vulnerable, being open, sharing your, your story and your legacy with us. On behalf of the entire team here at Veteran Voices, I just want to say a sincere thank you. Thank you for your service and your sacrifice and for what you continue to do to serve beyond the uniform. Uh, we want to invite our listeners to subscribe to Veteran Voices, wherever you get your podcast from. And a huge thank you to our supporters, our partners at Vets to Industry. And this is Mary-Kate Saliva wishing you all an incredible day and nothing but the best. I want you to stay motivated, do good, and be the change in this world that's needed. And as Jake said, you know, what's that story that you want to leave behind? And on that note, we'll see you next time. 
Take care.